0: This is Twist. This week in science, episode number eight hundred seventy-seven, recorded on Wednesday, May twenty-fifth, two thousand twenty-two. Don't forget your towel or science. Hey, everyone. I'm Dr. Kiki, and tonight on Twist, we will fill your heads with termite trees, bird buds, and pea pals. But first. Thanks to our amazing Patreon sponsors for their generous support of Twists. You can become a part of the Patreon community at patreon.com slash thisweekinscience.
1: Disclaimer, disclaimer, disclaimer. If you've been hitchhiking through the galaxy, you'll know that preparation is key. Expect the unexpected and you'll never be caught off guard. Know there are unknowns and you'll always be knowledgeable. Or you'll at least feel better about facing the probable crapshoot that is your future. Look back for inspiration, but don't get dragged downhill. Look forward with optimism and be ready for change. Look outward, look inward, look upward, look look downward, look skyward. The last one will keep things from landing on your head and just might help you catch your next ride. But only if you don't forget your towel. And the latest episode of This Week in Science, coming up next...
0: to you, Kiki. And a good science to you, too, Blair and everyone out there. Welcome to another episode of This Week in Science. We are back again, minus a Justin, as he is soon to be in transit back to the United States. But we are moving forward with our science and our towels. So, let us move into the science for the week. I have stories about AI moving science forward, termite travels, bird stuff, and um, and more. I've got a lot more, hmm. but we'll get to it. What did you bring for the animal corner, Blair?
1: Oh, I, uh, for the animal corner, I brought dolphin pea and uh, baby turtles. But I also have a fun story about uh, skydiving salamanders and also the hygiene hypothesis,
0: return of the hygiene hypothesis. Oh, we've never talked about that before. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Once or twice. Okay. I'm looking forward to it. We're going to clean up with our science. Not too much. <laughs> Not too much. Just enough. We're just just enough cleaning. That's right. As we jump in, I want to let you all know that if you are not yet subscribed to This Week in Science, you can find us all places podcasts are found. Look for This Week in Science. You'll also find us on YouTube, Facebook and Twitch, where we stream weekly on Wednesdays at 8 p.m. Pacific time. You can find us on Twitch, Instagram and Twitter as Twist Science. And if all this is just so much to fill your head with, then just go to our website, which is twist.org. All right, you ready to jump into the science?
1: Yes, give me the the short stories.
0: The short stories. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's start with some artificial intelligence. Just really moving science forward and potentially leading us to, you know, the future of science, really. I mean, that's the bigger picture, but the the short story is that published this week in Nature Astronomy is a paper by Joshua Bloom and his colleagues showing how a machine learning inference algorithm, an artificial intelligence algorithm was able to find details related to gravitational lensing that scientists over the decades since it was uh, first, First shown by Albert Einstein, have not picked up on. So gravitational lensing is the way that we are able to use the magnetic, not the, the gravit, not magnetic, the gravitational field around a star or an object and how it bends light into a new trajectory as light passes around that object. Light is affected by gravitational fields. Fascinating, right? So the idea with searching for exoplanets is that we can use one star in front of uh, a planet that passes in front of one star. And as that happens, we're able to see the dimming of the light when there is a star in front of a star with a planet going around. You have a gravitational influence that occurs because of the star and the orbital mechanics of the planet around the star that it's orbiting. Anyway. Physicists, astrophysicists, for decades have basically said, "Okay, there's a couple of outcomes to this," and we've and they split it up into a couple of different categories. The AI said, Mm-mm, "It's more complicated than that." Which <laughs> silly humans! Silly humans! You're missing out on all sorts of nuance, and so now you know it doesn't make things easier for astrophysicists who are trying to figure out the. Uh, the exact location and orbital mechanics of transiting planets in front of stars, transiting other stars. You know, it doesn't make it easier on them. It makes it a little, it makes it a little bit more complicated, but it's going to be more accurate over time. So, uh, these the way that normally the orbital stuff is worked out with this gravitational, in this sense, gravitational microlensing. Um, They call it degeneracy. And so instead of just two degenerates, there's just a whole posse of degenerates (laughs) (laughs) that are now leading to a whole unifying theory for this gravitational lensing instance. AI showing up the humans. Yeah. And so really, like, as I alluded to right in the beginning of this story, is that there are many things where humans you know we think our pattern recognition is fantastic but when you start looking at massive data sets and when you start looking at uh at the various combinations when there are lots of parameters involved that make it more complicated that's when the machine learning can really start discovering things that are outside our abilities and that's what's going to you know humans in conjunction with artificial intelligences are gonna push science forward. Mm-hmm. Are you afraid? Always. <laughs> <laughs> Don't fear the AI.
1: If they figure out the 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 physics before we do, then we're really doomed. <laughs> Why? That's you know, they'll figure the out theoretical physics, yeah. And they'll just start doing things that looks like magic to us, but they're understanding the universe in ways we never have. We won't stand a chance.
0: Well, if the artificial intelligences (laughs) have already figured out time travel, wouldn't we know it?
1: Unless they they don't want
0: us to know it. Mm. Maybe it's all playing off as it is supposed to. Yeah. Anyway. (laughs) All right. So you don't want to live with an AI, but what, what about you live with a dog? Oh, I love
1: it. And yeah. it
0: turns out it's good for
1: you because living with dogs or large families is gross, and that's a good thing. What? Why? Why? Yes. Is it dogs
0: or large families. I'm gonna
1: tell you. Okay. So this is this is a study looking at the hygiene hypothesis, something we've talked about a lot. Mm. The idea is that lack of exposure to clean of an environment growing up, uh, lack of exposure to microbes early in life actually leads to immune issues. Because if you're not exposed to those things growing up, then then your body overreacts when they show up later on, essentially. And so um, researchers used an environmental questionnaire to collect information from nearly 4,300 relatives of people with Crohn's disease and enrolled in the Crohn's and colitis can- Canada Genetic Environmental and Microbial Project, the CCC GEM project. Okay. They specifically wanted to look at Crohn's disease because it is an inflammatory disease in the gut that um, they think could have something to do with this. They Ooh, analyzed okay. several he- environmental factors, including family size, presence of dogs, presence of cats other household pets, numbers of bathrooms in the house, whether they lived on a farm, whether they drank unpasteurized milk, whether they drank well water. And they also looked at the age at the time of exposure for all of these things. What they found, again, this is purely a correlation from a self-reported survey. So this is a lot of asterisks. This is not direct evidence. But what they found from this survey this questionnaire is that exposure to dogs particularly between age 5 and 15 was linked to healthy gut permeability and microbe balance and the body's immune response as well all those things are protectors against crohn's disease they did not see that result with cats they're not sure why
0: but that's they, interesting yeah, yeah. I wonder if it's the different proteins in the saliva that that are usually become allergens I don't know this is interesting so it
1: could be that okay. they suggest it might have something to do with the the activities that owners generally get up to with dogs versus cats and that dogs force owners outside so you get more environmental Ooh. exposure I also think it's because people roll around with dogs and dogs are are pretty gross (laughs) and dogs will like lick you on the face all the time right right after they've licked their butt like even if you want to believe my dog doesn't do that it's happened okay it's happened get over it (laughs) but that's my theory but it is also true with family uh, with families of three or more members um in the first year of life I would argue similar, just grossness, uh-huh. germs, <laughs> picking your nose and then touching your sibling's face, you know, just like all of that, right?
0: Kids not washing hands, yes. lots yes. of just, you know, the 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 twin rivers, the 11s streaming down the nose, like all yes. things.
1: <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> but so this is what they saw, dogs and larger families. They hope that these findings will help as physicians um, kind of know what questions to ask when they are determining who is at high risk for gut issues. So if you say mm-hmm. you have a dog, that actually could be relevant medical information. Okay, you have a dog, you are less likely to have Crohn's disease. This might impact how I treat your symptoms, or it might impact how we look out for it as you age, right? So it's even if you can't figure out the exact um, kind of mechanism right away, It could still help with medical care if you know there is a correlation you can kind of test it out figure out if that correlation might be causative and then you can use that information to impact your care so it's still way that's way down the line this is really just hey when do you think you got a dog and uh when how many how old is your sibling age yeah at
0: what age were you first licked on the face by an animal and (laughs) what kind of animal when
1: did you drink well water (laughs) right (laughs) so it's yes it's definitely uh subjective still mm-hmm. but it's a very interesting addition to the hygiene hypothesis that where we talked about dishwashers before and all that kind of stuff just kind of feeds into the general theory that it's good to be exposed to some germs when you are growing up and uh, i like irritants
0: i like your interpretation that you know it's whether or not you're growing up in a gross situation <gasps> dogs and family ah.
1: yeah it's you know it's something i've actually thought a lot about with covid too because if uh you know kids spent over a year inside and mm-hmm. so that was a long time that if they didn't if yeah. they were a single child home without a dog they were not getting exposed to very much irritants potentially as opposed to if they had other siblings at home, they could have been exposed to more, or if they had a dog or seven, I don't know. So it's all, you know, it, it, uh, there's an impact there because there also could be getting exposure at school, of course. So when you Mm -hmm. take that away, it changes things.
0: You take it all away, Mm -hmm. reduce the exposure suddenly. hmm, We'll see. We'll see what happens with immune systems and allergies and autoimmune and gut disorders as Mm -hmm. the generations kind of pass what's going to happen 40 50 years from now yeah right
1: yeah you have to get your inoculation when you're 5 of germs basically there's <laughs> a cocktail we mixed up of all the potential allergens it's a in the region of that you gross. Live. yeah exactly think about that you could get exposed to allergens you could get get exposed to low levels you know basically just a vaccine right low levels of um, potential diseases and then also any gut irritants or anything like that just expose it all when you're young
0: Well, speaking of digesting things and how that works, let's talk about termites, Mm. wood termites. Oh yes,
1: the scourge of many a
0: homeowner. Yeah, homeowners tend to not like them very much. However, some researchers at the Evolutionary Genomics Unit at the Okinawa Institute of Science and Technology Graduate University with collaborators from around the world find wood termites very interesting and they have published their research looking into the uh, phylogenetic tree the evolution of wood termites in molecular biology and evolution dry wood termites they are the second most specied termite species and blair did you know that termites come from cockroaches no but
1: they look similar <laughs> they have oh a similar God. body plan look, right
0: yeah so you say they look similar and that's really a lot of the information that we have about termites and their evolutionary history it has to do with morphology and what they look like and where we found so them we could be totally wrong right so anyway <laughs> Termites are a type of cockroach. They split from cockroaches about 150 million years ago, which I find fascinating. Did not know that. That's new, just trivia point that uh, people out there take that once to get in the brain bank there. Um, These drywood termites uh, are known to form smaller colonies, usually less than 5,000 individuals, as opposed to other termites which live in the soil in big tunnel colonies and they're all in the underground and those can be like thousands and thousands and thousands of individuals millions of individuals Um, so dry wood termites are tend to be you know not quite as social i guess but they're still pretty social they're otherwise known as the calotermitidae and the calotermitidae because they split fairly early so it was like the split from the cockroaches and then about 100 million years ago they split off from the other termites and it was this very early split and so they were thought to be really primitive without a lot of interesting behaviors or other things aside from like eating wood and digesting it and reproducing that's about it anyway the researchers were like hey let's check this out and so they collected about 120 different species, multiple samples from around the world, and were able to uh, really look at the diversity of the various species and figure out what started where and when and how. And turns out that they have been all over the world. They didn't just start in different places. They started in South America. These termites first split off, drywood termites first split off in South America and, in, uh, and then started moving around. And because they live in wood, wood likes to float, they have been across the oceans of the world some 40 times in the last 50 million years. So they've floated back and forth and back and forth on bits and chunks of wood. And then more recently, with our wood hold boats and uh, our our lumber that we take from place to place humans have helped them spread from place to place around the world and so they have actually they actually have a very interesting genetic history, a lot of uh, the diversity comes from these various I guess, ocean travels, you know, go starting in one place, going someplace there, then dividing out into multiple species. Oh, and then coming back and interacting maybe with an older species. And suddenly you have uh, these species that are sub lineages of each other kind of getting along and then you have cross pollination. And then so their their diversity is fascinating. And it turns out that they're not that simple. They actually have a lot of the complex um behaviors that were not expected to be had in these multiple species so hey who knew drywood termites they're diverse they're fancy and they like to travel
1: it's they have a braided stream way better than ours it turns they out do. <laughs> <laughs> it's we yeah. get all excited and we're like well it's not just out of africa we also bounced around in these areas and over here it's like ah Termites have been around the world fifty times.
0: <laughs> they have, they've been, and and they've really been all over the world. I mean, wow. for a species that started in South America, they've traveled around the globe. They are everywhere, and uh, not and, in
1: Antarctica, though.
0: <laughs> right, <laughs> except for Antarctica. There's not much wood for them to chew no. on down in Antarctica, so that wouldn't. There's make just that a very one ship
1: thing. we talked about a couple weeks ago. Does yeah. That work?
0: <laughs> it might yeah. pop up. It might, yeah. So the you know interesting question now is uh, we've got a little bit more understanding of how interesting their history is. So now the textbooks that include termites need to be re- rewritten because their phylogenetic history, which was based on morphology or how they look, is wrong in a lot of ways. So time to rewrite some of those termite textbooks made from trees, which termites like to eat. Oh, it's the circle.
1: So you really do need the latest entomology textbooks. You do. Yeah. Yeah. It's some of those other things. You don't need the latest English lit textbook. Last year's was fine. History. Maybe, maybe that last chapter is important. All that new stuff.
0: Biology, science, it can change drastically from year to year. So you got to get that new one study. Suddenly there is so much more understood about the termites. So termites are one thing. Mm -hmm. Salamanders. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Another. I love salamanders. Tell me about them.
1: Yeah. Uh, You know what you might not have understood about salamanders before? They fly now. Yes, so like the snakes. wandering salamander, what a perfect name for it. Um, they hang out at the top of redwood trees. And a new study from the University of South Florida has found that this highly arboreal, that means living in trees, species of salamanders, specifically the wandering salamander, Anades vagrans, engages in parachuting and gliding to slow and direct their descent from the trees. So like, nah, nah, climbing down, that's for suckers. Who does I'm that? I'm a jump. <laughs> I'm just going to jump. For, it's, a, it's a lot It's yeah. a lot of work. Let's go. Yeah. So they rely on postures like skydiving humans to slow and control their fall. This really hasn't be, been looked at at salamanders ever for one very simple reason, their body does not look like it. It, it, it lends itself to parachuting or falling vertically without dying at all. They are little water monsters. That's their deal. <laughs> they are, they are perfectly adapted for swimming. They have that blade like tail that helps them to swim through the water. They can kind of scurry on land, but they have that sideways joint of their arms and legs. So they're not even, you know, that effective at that. So all of this to say, Why would you check to see if they're good at falling? (laughs) Well, it was observed in the wild. And so it was time, you guessed it, to put salamanders in a wind tunnel. Yes.
0: (laughs) Of course.
1: (laughs) Of course. They parachuted consistently, slowing their vertical speed by up to 10% while they fell. They coupled parachuting with undulations of their tail and torso, which allowed them to affect their gliding at non-vertical angles at about half of the time not only could they slow themselves down but they used fine scale control in pitch roll and yaw that's basically just all the directions when you are yeah. falling to maintain eventually yeah. body postures yeah exactly it's just
0: 3d is all that means. x y and z axes
1: yeah um <laughs> they also executed banking turns and they were able to glide horizontally so this is beyond just not dying this is being very in control of their orientation and placement in the air and again this is the the first time that this has been observed in salamanders and now i would say the thing that's really cool about this is that it's time to reevaluate any animal's ability to do this because if you see this video it does not look like an animal that is well adapted for this you would not expect it by looking at a salamander that they would be good at parachuting basically skydiving without a parachute excuse me and so right um that means almost any animal could potentially be capable of this because they don't have any fleshy wing-like or, or or webbing-like or or fin-like appendages that should help them with this they are really just using their movement to slow them down and to manipulate themselves in the air so in theory anybody could figure this out
0: I'm wondering though, I mean, they live in the treetops. You don't want to mm-hmm. just die if you fall. Right. So, I mean, what so the, the ones animals that you, don't they die know
1: are immediately selected for. Birds in the fly. Strongest right. Way
0: possible. Right. But if you're lightweight, we know mm-hmm. that insects very often can survive falls from great heights because of their mass to, you know, body size the the ratio that's there are the salamanders the same way this particular salamander could we take salamanders tiger salamanders that normally stay on <laughs> the ground they're
1: so chunky i don't they're, know if they'd right. be able to do it
0: yeah so is this just be a body size and a you know they have a a reflex where they spread out like a skydiver um is that something that makes it more possible whereas other salamander species would just plummet
1: (laughs) right well because that's the other problem right is that we we humans can't skydive without a parachute because you know of the whole momentum thing so we're so heavy and dense that that as we fall there's an acceleration and that creates a larger force over time and so there's that whole
0: issue mass times acceleration squared
1: yes exactly
0: (laughs) mass times gravity yes anyway yes
1: and And, um but but yeah so i i have a similar theory that even if the tiger salamander spread out perfectly out of instinct it still might have a bad time because it is so much chunkier these guys are small they're like as big as your finger and they're very thin so i i do think part of it is just you know a, a feather does fall uh
0: Slower than a bowling ball when you are Mm -hmm. not
1: in a vacuum.
0: Not in a vacuum, no, but with air resistance, it that makes all the difference. And that's what we're talking about here is natural atmospheric conditions. Yeah. Yeah. Fascinating. Parachuting. They've got little, I guess they're little salamanders with squirrel suits. No. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. So next time you go into a redwood forest, look up or
1: don't because there might be falling salamanders for me
0: look skyward you'll be looking up
1: to me (laughs) (laughs) for others they might not appreciate getting
0: bonked on the head by a salamander I would love it it would make my I would love to catch one on my head for Mm -hmm. sure for sure all right Blair Mm -hmm. you might not plummet to the earth like a salamander when it's your time to go <laughs> but we all have aging ahead of us that's just part of life even though some people want to avoid aging it does happen and so researchers are trying to figure out you know what's going on inside the cells with respect to aging and how it happens well we know that there is you know our, our chromosomes are packed tightly into these structures called chromatin, and so the chromatin is all widely, wi- widely, no, tightly wound around itself and around and about, and all of the all of the uh, molecular interactions allow it to take this really tightly packed shape. Some of it ha- is epigenetics that wrap around structures called histones we have um glycosylated sugared areas that stick out and all of these epigenetic areas are part of kind of what makes us who we are makes our bodies work the way that they do and epigenetic stuff while we can inherit some of it a lot of it is stuff that might come about as we as we develop and as we grow so the aging epigenome is something that's of a lot of interest. And these researchers just publishing in Developmental Cell were looking at uh, large-scale chromatin reorganization around the aging epigenome. And they found that with aging, you have there's hierarchies in the chromatin. So some areas are more preserved or their, their packing and their structure is preserved better and longer. But as you age more, there's more entropy and epigenetic instability as you age. So things that were wrapped around histones, maybe they're like, boop, I don't need that histone anymore. And so suddenly you have areas of your genes that are able to be turned into proteins that didn't used to be, and that can be bad. Or you know, it, it, it contributes to aging really. Along this, they found that as the deformation happens, there is basically a this entropy or what used to be structured areas within the chromatin. It just gets lazy. And so the structure starts to go away. And additionally, they discovered there is a placenta-specific protein type that starts to be excess- expressed in your cells. Normally, this protein is only expressed within the placenta. You know, and as you're growing in the womb. You, baby, are producing your placenta. And so when it's time for your, your placenta to stop growing, there are man signals that say, hey, placenta, stop doing the growth thing. We're good. And those are these same placenta-specific signals that start to pop up in aging cells with this old entropic chromatin. So it's like a circle of life thing that's going on. And I find it super fascinating that you're born and you have these control signals in your placenta that say, okay, no more placenta. It's time to be a baby and, and enter the world and do all this stuff. And then when it's time to start exiting the world, your cells are like, okay, let's do that placenta signal again. And it's time for us to, you know, maybe exit the world.
1: No. No. <laughs> <laughs> That only works if you can hook me back up. 3D, print right? me a placenta, please.
0: Get me a placenta. Or so put yeah, it in a
1: fanny pack carried around with me.
0: <laughs> yeah, we, I don't know. That'll be your your fanny pack full of like. Yeah, I never. I never anyway.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, you got it. <laughs> I I'm all about it. I'll take it.
0: I'll take it. Yeah, but it's interesting that the the epigenetic degradation, this like as the uh, epigenome starts to unloosen and unwind, things that maybe were packed away related to the placenta by epigenetics uh, markers over your lifetime suddenly are opened back up again. And that they're thinking as a result of this study that they can start looking for this, what they call pregnancy-specific beta-1 glycoprotein, PSG genes um, as a biomarker for aging. So that if we're able to see how much of this pregnancy-specific glycoprotein you have, it could really let people know um, how they are aging, you know, at what point in their life. and so. Uh, we might be able to identify aging drivers and intervention targets as well. Uh, so it's not all over. It's, you know, targets are good, right? We like yeah. the targets for the promises of Blair's forever youth.
1: So let me let me ask one clarifying question. So if you were able to reverse the signal, that wouldn't actually do anything to your aging. This is just a, a byproduct of your aging, right? This is a signal of it, <laughs> right. not a cause.
0: Well, it's also a cause because the action of this uh, per- particular protein that is to stop the, uh, the growth and the development of the placenta. And so it starts to turn off things that maintain your cells and keep mm-hmm. the cells active and healthy and instead allows, uh, allows things that degrade cells and degrade metabolism to start coming into play.
1: So this could lead, lead to treatment. It could. Information. That's very yeah. cool. I yeah. like it.
0: Yeah. So it's one piece of the puzzle. It's not the whole puzzle. It's not stopping this chromatin degradation from happening in the first place, but it is a downstream thing. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Part of the puzzle. Neat. All right, Blair, do you have another story here? or did No, I no.
1: It? I think it's up to you now. Okay
0: one more well i think it's you know as we're talking about this you know if you and i start talking more and more about what the next thing we're gonna do is like eventually we'll come to a decision right like a de- democratic decision really right The well... and if we had if we had a larger group of people we could all put our voices in everybody could start talking about what we wanted to do and maybe come to some kind of consensus and then do it and and coordinate mm-hmm. our actions. Yeah,
1: yeah. There's usually a ringleader, but yeah, you can get a consensus out of people.
0: You can get you can get a consensus out of people. Well, you can also get a consensus out of jackdaws. Jackdaws uh-huh. are a kind of corvid, related to yeah. crows and ravens, and they are also as mo- a lot of cities may have crow springs and crow falls where the crows come through and at in in the morning or in the evening you hear the calls of the crows as they all come to roost in the trees or they all get up and they leave and they go to wherever it is that they're going jackdaws have this behavior as well and so some researchers decided that they needed to look at um, what happens with what with the sounds that the, the communicative sounds that the jackdaws are making and the behaviors that they're showing. Does the amount that they caw, 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 talk to their jackdaw neighbors, does that make a difference in, uh, in, in what they actually do? And it turns out, what do you think, Blair?
1: Yeah, they're yes, social animals.
0: <laughs> they are very social animals, and so in the mornings, Uh, When they are going to, uh, they roost in the trees in the winter and before they depart, there will be one or two birds that start the calling and they call more and more and more. And as a larger and larger number of birds enter into the cacophony of jackdaw morning music, uh, it does correlate to the probability that they're all going to get up and fly away and go away so Mm jackdaws they they yell at each other hey joe time to go go? are you blair you ready are you ready to go now no not yet come come (laughs) on blair let's we gotta go come on (laughs) all right i'm coming i'm coming exactly you imagine a whole neighborhood gotta get on the bus How do you get everybody on the bus everybody yells at each other get on the bus then they get on the bus jack dawes yeah it's one of the few examples that we have scientifically examined of this kind of coordinated communication for mass behavioral activity which i think it's fascinating and that it seems as though we should be looking into this more and more since there are so many species that do have birds especially in their migrations these mass movements on a seasonal basis
1: yeah i mean point a finger at any corvid something special is going on especially socially right so just just pour all the research into all the corvids i want to know i want to know what they're doing i want to know why they're doing it i want to know how they're doing it
0: yeah thank you corvids (sighs) thank you corvids for telling us and i do have another corvid story about their tiny, clever brains for later oh, in the show. yay. Yeah. More bird stuff. Brain. Bird brain stuff later in the show. This is This Week in Science. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode. We hope you are enjoying the show. If you are enjoying the show, please tell a friend. Bring a friend to listen with you. This next week, we'd love to hear from them. Hey, Blair, you want some COVID news? You got your towel? Are you prepared for COVID no stuff? No
1: COVID news. No. <laughs>
0: why, why I guess not? at least
1: it's not monkeypox news. Stick with the COVID. <laughs> well,
0: yeah, we're going to stick to COVID. I don't have a monkeypox section Good. for the, the rundown yet. Thank I mean, you, I, no. <laughs>
1: This towel is right going to turn into a security blanket. Really. That's what I'm watching you. You're taking it as a security towel. COVID, go away.
0: <laughs> we would like it all to go away. Yes. Oh, wouldn't that be so nice? Well, few studies this week to talk about. Uh, first one on the docket is... Uh, published this week in Cell Metabolism, researchers were looking at what exactly is going on in diabetic individuals to lead to them developing more severe COVID-19 symptoms um, when they do get infected. And apparently what's happening is that ACE2 is upregulated in hyperglycemia in kidney organoids and patient renal cells and so they assume based on this study that this is likely what's going happen going on in vivo as well so in people where you have hyperglycemia uh you've got this the ace 2 receptor which is important to sars cov2 infection actually they're getting more of them in the kidneys, more ACE2 in the kidneys. Uh, ACE2 is also related to water movement and metabolism uh, within the kidneys. So this it, it has these dual purposes that are very important metabolically, but also can be a problem in this particular case. Um, and so with this particular study, they saw that there were increased changes to the metabolism as well within these kidney cells and in the kidney organoids that they created. And the ACE2 receptors that were upregulated in their lab experiments boosted cellular infection of SARS-CoV-2. And so it's very likely that this increased amount of ACE2 is leading to increased infection with SARS-CoV-2. Specifically, Getting in through the bloodstream, through the kidneys, um, and in through those cells. And that the possibility, however, and here's the upside is that now that they're seeing that there are these metabolism uh, related effects that increase the ACE2 receptors, potentially there's a, a way that we can target energy metabolism within renal cells in patients to be able to decrease the likelihood of infection. So, or at least decrease or at least to help treatment once if somebody does get infected. So understanding more about why uh, diabetes is uh, a, in particular uh, a, an, a, a problem uh, with this virus uh, is really important for being able to treat it more later.
1: Right. Because as much as we would like it to just go away, it's likely going to be around forever now, so we have to find a way to protect susceptible communities moving forward.
0: Exactly. Yeah. Yep. Forever, ever, forever, ever. Well, even though it's going to be around for a lot longer, and we don't really know what's going on with BA four, BA five, all these <laughs> other <laughs> yeah. variants, BA seventeen. Uh, no, you no, know, there is research out currently. Just came out this last week that uh, out of University of Wisconsin Madison published in Nature that the BA2 subvariant is similar to BA1 in, in the severity and in its ability to cause infection. So we weren't really sure whether BA2 was the same as the original Omicron strain, mm-hmm. and it pretty much is. So, Omicron less severe than Delta, mm-hmm. more infectious. Mm-hmm. BA2 is the same way. So it's and if you and if I mean, for most people who are probably seeing their neighborhoods, their communities uh, with BA2, which is the dominant sub variant, uh, around the world almost, I mean, seven, seven dozen countries, it's the dominant variant um, that, you know, as you're watching it go through, you might also people are getting it more often, and mm-hmm. but not as many people are you that you know potentially are ending up in the hospital, but hospitals are starting to fill up again, folks. So, you know, maybe those masks can help because we know that vaccines should not be the only protection that we have. So, ventilation, masks, vaccine is great. Um, and finally, we've talked about long COVID and risk for long COVID before, and there are. Various studies as to the percent of individuals who end up with long COVID, some studies have said up to 30% of people who are infected with any type of COVID end up with long COVID. Other studies say as little as 7% of individuals who are infected end up with long COVID. Well, the question has also been raised as to how does vaccination impact these probabilities and it's not as good as we hoped so vaccination according to a study out this last week only reduces the probability of long covid by about 15 percent so it's a little but it's not as much as we were hoping it would be so uh, vaccination as i said should not be our only line of defense it helps it's part of the whole system but as cases are rising masking social distancing ventilation Do what we can, everyone.
1: This so also the math here is important to pay attention to. If it's only seven
0: percent of people who get COVID have long COVID and Yeah, and it's more likely to be the people who are in the hospitals more often who have the long COVID. Yeah.
1: Right. And then it's it's fifteen percent of seven percent. That's that's still you know it's a very law lo- it's a very small number still so that yes. that is it's it relatively yeah. it's a small number but the other thing I was thinking about is if the vaccine is less likely to get you if taking the vaccine prevents you from dying it could actually yes. push those numbers higher than it would be otherwise because you're you have kind of this confounding variable now of you didn't die so if you could magically figure out if people who died from COVID were going to get long COVID, you might find out that the difference is actually much bigger. Yeah. But because all those people die who didn't get vaccinated, they're not part of the factoring in of who gets long COVID and who doesn't. Right. So it, it kind of, it messes with the numbers a little bit so that you have this bigger n- physical number. You have this larger N as opposed to percentage, right. Of yep. people with long COVID who are vaccinated because there's this whole group, this whole number of people who, who are dead. It's, it, it, it yeah your brain to think about, but it totally influences the numbers.
0: Yeah. And yeah, these are the kinds of things that the uh, epidemiologists, the public health statisticians, these are the kinds of things that they're having to take into account to try and figure all this out. Yeah. I will let their brain hurts. Their their brain hurts. Their brains hurt for me.
1: And I will also say, you know, long COVID still sucks. And I'm not trying to say that it doesn't. But if I was picking, I'd rather have long COVID than die. So
0: it's, that's yeah, it's, of it's like, one of the. It's which you it, know, <laughs> it's th- tough th- th- because th- there there's some long <laughs> COVID it's varying that are levels truly horrendous. But it's still yeah,
1: it still is a question of like, I think overall it seems like the vaccine did an excellent job at preventing death, which was its main job.
0: Yep. And prevent, yeah, preventing death and reducing severe disease as well. So fewer people end up in the hospital. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is true. Oh, and monkeypox, by the way, it's, mm-hmm. it, yes, it's spreading, but it doesn't spread at all the same way no. that uh, SARS-CoV-2 yeah. does. Uh, it don't touch any by-
1: strangers with rashes or yeah. anyone with a rash who's been out of the country recently. Just don't touch yeah. them
0: and people who have been uh who have been inoculated for smallpox are probably less likely to be infected with monkeypox and the monkeypox is likely spreading more easily because we have a whole lot of generations few generations now that have never experienced smallpox because we eradicated it we got rid of it right when we yeah. So now st- stores of smallpox and monkeypox vaccine are being brought out of our uh, storehouses to enable vaccination inoculation for various uh, populations that are highly at risk. But yeah, if it's an obvious rash, pustules, those kinds of things, just stay home and call your doctor, stay away from other people. People don't go rubbing up on each other at a rave i don't know if that's Mm -hmm. how it Mm -hmm. is this could be a myth and i sound sound
1: advice
0: regardless regardless (laughs) it's sweaty okay (laughs) enough about that this is this week in science it's uh me and blair tonight talking about all the science that we wanted to bring for ladies night with our towels and science woo! if you're enjoying the show please head over to our website twist.org and click on the patreon link patreon is how listeners of the show people who enjoy the show like you help support what we're doing here patreon allows us to be able to keep track of you and to send you rewards small ones ten dollars and more a month And we will thank you by name at the end of the show. There are other things that come in the mail, little fun gifties for various levels. You can check out how the levels of support work with you and your budget. But any amount really helps us to do this show every single week and keep it going. We really appreciate your support and can't do this without you. Thank you. All right, let's come back now. There's... What is it? This time in the show where we don't want to talk about COVID, we don't want to talk about the monkeypox, we only want to talk about the animals. It's time for Blair's Animal Corner with Blair. except for giant what you got Blair oh
1: my goodness would you like to hear about dolphins as pee pals <laughs> I knew you would yes. yes yes this is all about bottlenose dolphins always fun stories from our buddies, the bottlenose dolphins. And a recent study finds out, this is from University of St. Andrews, that they taste the urine of their friends in the water to figure out who's around. They keep their mouths open and sample urine for longer from familiar individuals than unfamiliar ones. And so this is uh, the first case, as far as these researchers know, of a vertebrate shown to have social recognition through taste alone. Now this is where Kiki, it's time to put on your skeptic hat because here is their reasoning. <laughs> Dolphins do not have olfactory bulbs. Wait, what? Leaving the team certain it was taste and not smell at play. Now, okay. They're of the water. Blah, blah, blah. Okay. but They don't have olfactory bulbs. First of all, We've played that game before, yeah, <laughs> well, we have uh-huh. <laughs> with birds. So I don't know. we'll see. We'll see okay. if we if if truly <laughs> they do not have olfactory bones, but even that yeah. the thing is, this sounded very similar to me to things that other mammals do, and I'll get to that in a second, but just to kind of explain what these dolphins are doing, they um. The bottles nosed dolphins. They are. So first of all, this is a good individual species to look at this in because they already know that they have signature whistles for specific individuals. So they, they remember individuals, which is hard to test in other. Species in general. How do you know this dog from that dog or this cow from that cow? And so, because dolphins have been proven to have these whistles that are almost like names for individuals, right, and that they can remember them for over 20 years, this means they have this baseline understanding of individuals and can tell individuals apart. So, then they wanted to see if they could tell them apart their urine. So they presented eight dolphins with different urine samples from familiar and unfamiliar individuals. They found that they spent about three times as long sampling the urine from those that they knew. They're really swishing it around to try to figure out what's going on. Oh my goodness. Uh, so the the basis for this that they might care about the urine also comes from something that's been observed that's called genital inspection. So this is when dolphins use their jaw to touch the genitals of another individual. And in many um, situations, There is some urine expressed. And so that's a good opportunity for them to taste it and make an association of this urine. Steve's urine tastes like this, basically. (laughs) And so then when you go, when they go into the water and they smell, they taste a specific urine, they're like, oh, that's Steve. Steve was here a little bit ago. So this is their theory. What this sounds like to me is something that a lot of mammals do that involves the tasting or smelling of urine for example giraffes they will actually taste the urine the males will taste the urine of the female to see if she's an estrus before they attempt to mate so they, okay. they they fully you know they they kind of do their their special dance where the female goes okay yeah yeah Basically, you want me to pee for you. I'll pee for you. <laughs> so she pees, and then the male tastes it and goes, "Yes, now is the time." She's an estrus. There's also this whole thing called fleming response, which is where um, mostly hoofstock, but also cats. There's a lot of different mammals will smell the urine of a female, and if she, and they'll do this crazy face, which is the fleming response, where they they curl up their front lip like completely. And it's actually to expose the specific skin above their teeth so that the the horm- the pheromones can interact with um, the, the vomeronasal organ. Yes. Also called the Jacobson's organ, which is the thing that snakes have to be able to, quote unquote, taste the air, right? It's the same supposedly
0: organ, we cool. don't have because we haven't found it yet.
1: Right. And so this is an olfactory sense organ. So they consider this a smell based organ. This seems too similar, <sighs> yeah, for so similar that to not be part of this, and I was not part of this research team, and I don't know if they <laughs> tested you know if if estrus timing had anything to do with any of this or if it was related with any mating opportunities or anything like that, but this is where I would research next if I was in charge of these dolphins is <laughs> because it really feels like it is somehow related to this opportunity. Dolphins came from land mammals. So they they have actually a lot more in common with these animals that have fleming responses on land than, than we like to think because they feel right. so different. But um, yep. so that's what's really ringing true to me about this study. The other crazy thing about this <laughs> is that the researchers actually think that they're They might be able to use this information to have impacts on human obesity. So stick with me. (laughs) They believe that the same gene that allows dolphins to identify the lipids in urine that they use to identify individuals, also identify um, other information from them, that these are the same that are present in humans, where it helps them to know if they've had enough to eat. It's the same lipids. (laughs)
0: Really?
1: Yeah. (laughs) So they think that studying the gene in dolphins could, sorry, it's the same gene, not the same lipids. the same gene so they think that studying the gene in dolphins could improve understanding of how we regulate our own intake (laughs) seems like a bit of a jump to me um but they think that it's related so they they think there's something to that but also knowing that there's human caused pollution like oil spills and other chemical runoff that also are going into the water mean that there could be an impact to dolphins' ability to signal one another. So there's these two other crazy ideas. So one is that somehow you could use this knowledge of this gene to help with human obesity. But the other crazy idea, less crazy, but still kind of very interesting, is that you have to keep in mind when you are spewing pollution into waterways that you could be impacting dolphins' ability to taste each other's pee. So consider
0: that. I will definitely be considering the considering it the next yeah. time I try to pollute a waterway.
1: But think about the dolphins <laughs> trying to taste each
0: other's pee. Uh, Don't pollute. Uh, <sighs> I'm I'm gonna say I think that the uh, the the link to human obesity is kind of a stretch, but I do appreciate the you know the the implications for. Here we have an animal who exists in its, you know, we go through air. And if you walk through a plume of smoke, you walk through pollution that you can smell or, you know, something that is noxious that affects the way you breathe or the way you feel, you're going to, it's really going to affect you. Um, And if you're an animal like humans, we apparently, you know, we've got pheromones, pheromones, hormones, body odor, that kind of stuff, but we don't use it the same way these other animals do, obviously. But if you're an animal like a dolphin, who uses the scents in the water, the scent tastes in the water, yeah. We're impacting all sorts of life in the Mm -hmm. water where they, you know, use these chemicals to survive.
1: (sighs) Yeah. Meanwhile, survival. If you're a baby leatherback turtle, it's all about
0: the moon. Yes, it is.
1: And not how you would think, actually. So uh, when you're a sea turtle hatchling and you iner- emerge from your nest, it's usually at night and you have to crawl towards the ocean. This is called sea finding. You have to do it quickly and efficiently because otherwise you will get it by birds, crabs, raccoons. It's a, it's a harrowing journey. And the way that you would do this as a baby turtle, I'm just going to keep talking to you, the audience, as you are all baby turtles. You would figure this out because the sea, uh, the sea would actually be dimmer than the land um, or brighter than the dimmer landward horizon. So the idea is the um, the moon is out, the moon is reflecting on the ocean, it does not reflect off the beach and trees behind you. So it's brighter towards the ocean, so you gotta walk towards the brightness, you gotta shuffle towards the brightness. Sorry, I forgot. Huh. The turtles.
0: <laughs> Little baby turtle shuffle.
1: Yes. So this helps them to find the ocean even when it's uneven and maybe they have to go up a bank to go back down. They're following the brightness. This study looks at, uh, this is from Florida Atlantic University, and it's looking at the difference between leatherback sea turtles and um, loggerhead sea turtles. And leatherbacks, Dermochelys coriacea, they often will crawl around in circles trying to find the ocean. They have trouble. It delays their entry, and of course, that changes their survival. The hard-shelled turtles, the loggerheads, they uh, are more sensitive to light. They have an easier time finding their way to water. Those leatherbacks less sensitive, harder to figure it out. Spend more time going around in circles.
0: Leatherback this means, eyes this means backwards. Yeah. The ones yeah. with the hard shells who have a little bit more protection right. are like, oh, it's so easy. And the ones that are more sensitive yeah. are like,
1: where? <laughs> I mean, yeah, absolutely. Don't it eat does, me. It doesn't really make sense. Um, th- so the, the other strange thing is then when these researchers looked closer, when they first just noticed that the leatherbacks were going around in circles over and over and over, they looked at leatherback eyes. And there was not any s- obvious structural adaptation that might promote improved visual function under dim lights. They didn't have a larger cornea. They didn't have a larger lens. They weren't able to gather light more efficiently. And so the, the their eyes are inferior for this task is ultimately what it comes down to. And so the only time that they were really good at getting straight to the ocean is during closer to the full moon. When it was during a new moon, when it was very dark, they had a really, really hard time. They were going all over the place. <laughs> and so the, so this is, first of all, just helpful to know with turtles because they're endangered, obviously, and light pollution can be a problem because if they're trained to go towards brightness and there is artificial light somewhere, that can mess them up. This is part of the reason that sea turtle nesting beaches are so well protected and monitored because stuff like that can really mess them up. But there the reason researchers think that these leatherbacks are so poorly equipped for their journey so early in life is that they actually um are better at seeing in the ocean once they get there.
0: Uh, yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah. So the the costs persist, basically the, the reason it's it's beneficial to have trouble finding the ocean originally is that. They are better, once they get in the ocean, at detecting prey, mates, and favorable habitats. Loggerheads, alternatively, are mostly in shallow coastal waters. Very clear waters, easy to navigate, all that good stuff. The leatherbacks go way deep, and so they have to deal with a lot more murky waters, darker waters, that kind of stuff. But just the the way their eye is structured, researchers think... It's beneficial in the long run, but that does mean that their survivorship is is not great. It's um, very low. Yeah, <laughs> when yes, they're young, it is about one in one thousand to one in ten thousand leatherbacks <sighs> will see
0: adulthood. So wow! So it's, it's not
1: it's not great.
0: That's awful. Yeah. Wow. wow. I had no I had no idea that was the. The ratio—that's mm-hmm.
1: that's why <laughs> sea turtles lay hundreds to thousands hundreds. of eggs, yeah. depending yeah. on the species. And yeah, it's uh, it's pretty
0: it's pretty wild. <laughs> There's a question: uh, Couldn't they assist turtles with bright lights that are well placed? So on moonless nights, yes. wouldn't it be a great idea to take big stadium lights and shine them at the ocean?
1: Yes, and I would not be surprised if turtle uh, conservationists currently do that. That sounds like something they might do.
0: Yeah. I mean, what can we do currently? What are the things that we can do to help these poor little turtles who die at such such high rates? Well, here's the
1: thing. Before humans stomped on the scene, stop, stop, stop probably driving some animals to extinction as they stepped. Um, they, they did fine because once they got to the ocean, they thrived and their numbers were good. Climate change wasn't happening. So they had these big clutches of eggs and it was okay that one in 1,000 survived. But now that sea turtles have all these other problems, climate change, they have pollution, they have Um, poaching. They have all these other things that are happening to them. Now it's too many things. Their populations can't handle it. And that's why we're seeing this problem. It's not, it's not that this survivorship and I, it sounds really mean, but really it was, it was part of how it was working before you laid a giant clutch and some of them made it. But because we're now having this, kind of back-end pressure on adults that didn't really exist before. They were nigh indestructible, except for maybe, maybe by bull sharks or tiger sharks. Um, that th- Now there's this extra pressure that is all of yeah. the human impact. And so it's now it's a problem. <laughs> now we'd like more of them to make it to the ocean.
0: Yeah, we would. We would like many, many more of them to make it to the ocean and mm-hmm. not eat plastic bags that they think are jellyfish. hmm or get straws stuck up their nose. Get straws up their noses? No. I thought that was only a problem for elementary school kids. Oh no, no.
1: Okay,
0: unfortunate. unfortunate. Ha <laughs> unfortunate. unfortunate. That is that. Is that all you have for the up, animal, animal corner. corner?
1: Just dolphins and turtles today. Very aquatic episode.
0: That's a very aquatic episode. And you know, earlier plummeting. Oh yes, salamanders. The salamandre. <laughs> From the trees to the seas and beyond. Well, I wanna to talk to you about corvids. Can we talk about birds? I'm gonna take it a little always. bit- Always. Always, yes. I'm gonna take it a little bit further for a bit of bird brain conversation. So uh, there's a bit of question for a very long time. Birds have very small brains. How is it possible that some of them have incredible cognitive abilities? Corvids are a family of birds, crows, ravens, jackdaws, scrub jays, magpies. They're all in this family of corvids that are capable of such amazing feats of memory and cognitive ability. Um, One of the things that's very uh, interesting about their abilities is that they are very I guess uh, plastic, or they—they they can switch strategies if they need to. They are—they uh, can adjust what they're working on, so they're not just focused on only doing things a particular way. They can learn fairly quickly, more quickly than other species, uh, when it comes to various tests that we've given them. Um, So there's this question of how how they do it. Well, a bunch of researchers said, well, let's just get down to it and look at their brains. So (laughs) so they compared a whole bunch of brains between chickens, pigeons, ostriches, and some some crows, carrion crows and others. So they took a whole bunch of corvids and non-corvids and looked to see what was going on because they're like, okay, one of the hypotheses is number of neurons. And so number of neurons in different areas of the brain, the telencephalon is kind of like the, the big processing area of the brain in the bird brain. And so they said, Okay, maybe number of neurons there compared across and they said, No, it's all pretty much the same. Oh, interesting. Crows and ostriches have very similar number of neurons in their telencephalons which I find very interesting because ostriches are such big birds. <laughs> They're not very okay. smart. And yeah, comparatively, very very fascinating here. Yeah. Um, and so then they extended their hypothesis hypothesis a bit to 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 suggest that maybe it's not just the overall telencephalon that's important but parts of the telencephalon in specific. So, uh, high neuron counts in what are called associative pallial areas. And these are areas that are thought to drive flexible, complex cognition. And so, they uh, comparatively, these are the, the associative pallial areas would be compar- comparable to some of the higher processing cortical regions in the primate brain that allow primates to do. A lot of the amazing feats of cognition that we're able to do. So they looked in these pallial areas and they're like, oh, corvids have more neurons than chickens and, and pigeons, which is not really a big deal. But really, their p- very specific areas were twice as high in corvids than in all the other birds. So the corvids had these very specific these associative pallial areas the mesopallium the neopallium the subpallium there's all these areas in the brain that corvids had more they had it better and uh, so it really does kind of add to this this story that researchers are trying to figure out is what makes the corvid brain so special and it is apparently the allotment of neurons. So, where are the neurons more densely packed? Where are they? Where Where are the resources in the brain, and and where are the connections happening? And so, these associative areas. It's kind of it's not just the areas; it's the fact that they're associated with each other and so they have connections kind of between them and that's another aspect of the primate brain which is that there are these connections and networks that allow um, very complex thought to occur
1: i'm glad we're figuring this out because otherwise i'd just be convinced that crows are cryptids Um. (laughs) (laughs) they're not cryptids no (laughs) the first half of this story i was like so what is it then I can't, there has to be an explanation. If not, it's magic. Right. And they're just I'm so actually... far and away smarter than other birds.
0: Right. I mean, except for maybe uh, the parrots, the Ossines, or, you know, there are yeah. definitely social birds that are very smart, but the Corvids, they are special.
1: They have they're their tool special. making and strategy and tool storage and communication mm-hmm. between each other and memories and things that are special. I don't I don't yeah. see parrots, you know, parrots might be able to identify objects and and learn phrases and do other really cool stuff. But it's not the same.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um it's it's still pretty pretty impressive though. Oh, it's but-
1: definitely still impressive. It just feels like on a different level of yeah. organization.
0: One thing I thought was very interesting. Um, so, my when I was studying bird brains, the area of the brain that I focused on was the hippocampus. And the hippocampus is this area that's like usually it's right on the top. So, you've got in the pigeon, in the rear of the brain, it lengthens out and it becomes this very broad structure that's right on the top. It starts out kind of in the middle section. In the chicken, it's very similar, but the measurements that they did, they found that the chicken has massive numbers of neurons in the hippocampus compared to other birds, which I find very interesting, and I, I wanna understand why that is, but I'm not a graduate student anymore or a researcher, so somebody else has to do that for me. Um, yeah, but the carrion crow, man, beautiful, beautiful, Big hippocampus, very large, clear brain structures. I'm very, I'm in love with, I'm in love with the crow brain. Um, they also did their neuron counts to try and determine which neurons were there. And yeah, anyway, long story short, yes, crows, they corvids, they have uh, more neurons in the right places to allow more complex cognitive thought. You know, right. if you think that more is better, then that's the correlation that. That you can therefore draw
1: more is better for some things which apparently includes neurons yes <laughs>
0: apparently apparently neurons in this particular sometimes
1: episode. specific types in specific animals
0: asterisk <laughs> asterisk
1: asterisk
0: asterisk, asterisk, asterisk. asterisk. Yeah tricks, um, yep. oh, and before we put you to sleep, because I really don't want to do that, I don't like putting me, 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 me. I mean, me, 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 me. I really wanted you to put to put you to sleep. I would just get the anesthesia out. <sighs> knock you out. Ooh. put you down, which we talked about on the show is very interesting. Anesthesia. It has this like wave like it just soothes the brain. and instead of the the brain having like, it's massive activity where the people are just not people neurons are like active all over the brain at different times and having all their conversations with other neurons and blah, 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 blah. brains very going on its its own thing. When uh, anesthesia gets in there, the brain the neurons all go woo, all together ooh, and it's a wave around the brain ooh and it's like they they all wanted the neurons all want to do the same thing and they go, ooh all together. That sounds very calming. <laughs> Well, you're in anesthesia. So yes, in a sense it is. Um, Researchers just uh, published this week. They were trying to figure out, look at anesthesia and the effects on brain functions and on brain activity, deep anesthesia. There's a phenomenon. It's called burst suppression. And so you have this synchronized activity and then a period of silence. This is burst and suppression. And the deeper the anesthesia, the shorter the phases of you of the bursts. So you have Mm. burst and lots of quiet, you know, so the deeper you're under the less active your brain is. And so the more silence or suppression there actually is. And you know, different anesthetics have different suppression patterns and they vary in their mechanism of action. And so these researchers were like, what is going on in here? And so they did an fMRI study and they decided to compare humans, monkeys, and rodents in a standardized method so that it was the same all across the board to see how anesthetized brains, all the different species brains uh, reacted under the fMRI and and whether it showed the same pattern. And what they found is that all of the species had the same kind of burst suppression activation. However, the visual cortex in all of the species wasn't following the same pattern, except for the rats. So the visual cortex of monkeys, of primate of the primates of humans um the visual cortex was like i'm not going to play along Hmm. with your birth suppression game i'm going to do what i want and have my own activity the whole time so the visual cortex is like anesthesia whatever (laughs) (laughs) except in rats And they found that in rats, the visual cortex did exactly what the anesthesia wanted. It did the burst suppression. It did, it did the, it did the pattern the same exact way. And so the question now that these researchers are raising is what's the difference in the rat brain? Why is the visual cortex? following the birth suppression pattern, when in the macaques, the marmosets, the humans, the visual cortex obviously was like one of these kids is doing its own thing. why was it different? And if it is this different, should rats be used in a in a in brain models that um, are used for um, anesthesia that are used for neural treatments mm-hmm. that are used for so many different, you know, it eventually the research always ends up in humans before it, you know, in clinical trials before it gets used, but we find this big of a difference in the the pattern of activation. And it really makes you wonder about the models that we use for our research.
1: Hmm. What could this mean? How could this manifest physically and practically if the if the visual cortex isn't playing along with anesthesia?
0: How could that, what could that right, well, result in? It, I don't know. I don't know. Right. <laughs> I guess <laughs> and that's, the, and that's another big question, yeah. right? What is happening? Why is there continued activation within the visual cortex when it is part of the brain? It's not like it's completely separate. But the one thing that they, that they ask is like, maybe it's because uh, primates are primarily visual, Mm -hmm. that uh, there has that there's something to do with even just uh, the way the visual cortex is activated during deep sleep or the way it's connected to other areas of the brain, because it is such a primary sense Mm -hmm. for our survival that maybe there is some kind of uh, some aspect of its uh, its underlying importance. Right.
1: Yeah. Primates yeah. have binocular vision, which is the forward facing eyes usually yeah. associated with, with predators. Right. And rats So rats, down. of course, have the, the, the vision on the sides. I forget what the fancy word for that is, but it's, um it's what prey <laughs> has. Yeah. So it's, so they're, they're inputting that that information completely different, because it's not a continuous field of view, like binocular vision is. So it's they're processing the information completely different. But also, if you want to think about it evolutionarily from like, what that information is giving them, it's also different. If they're constantly looking for predators, but monkeys and primates are are foraging, using them for social interactions, hunting, it's kind of
0: all related. Yeah, I don't know, but I mean, they found this. They didn't expect to find this, and they don't understand why there's a difference. Mm-hmm.
1: What? Yeah, does see it what mean? cats do. Our cat? Do cats do? You know, just pick right. another predator that's like similarly mm-hmm. quote unquote uncomplex, like a mouse, right, and see what's
0: going on. Stop calling my cats uncomplex. You dogophile. You
1: know what? I mean, dogs are, quote unquote, uncomplex also. You know, all yeah. those quadrupeds. I got
0: you. Kind of, you know. Uh.
1: Just stick figure mammals. Lump them uh. all together. Right?
0: Carnivora. The carnivora. Yes. Oh, I don't know. We're just get wasting our time until the fungi come and eat us all. So, yeah. yeah.
1: That's fine. If I get to That's see a is. sentient slime mold. I will succumb to it. It'll be a great day <laughs>
0: Oh,
1: you're amazing. No, you, you can, can have it, me. That's you can fine. Just take it. It's fine. In. You deserve it. You earned <laughs> it.
0: <laughs> well, that's it for me. I got brains, mm-hmm. animal brains, corvid brains. Mm-hmm. You had the the P and the C. Yeah. Thank you for bringing that, Blair. That of is- course.
1: <laughs> you know, I like to keep it light.
0: <sighs> I know. I like it. I, I like, we like it light. We like it fun. We like it enjoyable. That's all we want. Have we made it to the end of the show? Did we do it? We did it. Oh, my gosh. Definitely under uh, 90. This but Once week.
1: we're done with all this stuff, it'll be, you know.
0: Yeah, tight 90. That's what we're heading for. Oh, my goodness. Everybody, thank you so much for listening to the show this week. If you have any questions, send them to us. We might be able to answer them on the air. You know, we like answering your questions. We could be doing that right now. If you had a question for us, we could be doing a quick answer segment if you had a question. But anyway, in the meantime, it's time for me to say thanks. Give shout outs to... The people who help with the show. Fada, thank you so much for your help on show notes, show descriptions, on uh, social media. So many things. We appreciate you so much. Identity Four, thank you for recording the show. Gord, Lore, others who help to keep the chat rooms happy and safe and kind places to be. Thank you for being there. Rachel, thank you for editing the show and for your assistance. And I want to say thank you very much, to our Patreon sponsors. Thank you to Teresa Smith, James Schoffer, Richard Badge, Kent Northcote, Rick Loveman, Pierre Velazar, Bralfi Figueroa, John Ratnaswamy, Carl Kornfeld, Karen Tazi, Woody MS, Chris Wozniak, Dave Bunn, Vagard, Chef Stad, Hal Snyder, Donathan Stiles, a.k.a. Don Stylo, John Lee, Ali Coffin, Maddie Perrin, Garv Sharma, Ragan, Dun Mundus, Stephen Albaran, Daryl Myshach, Stu Pollock, Andrew Swanson, Fred S104, Sky Lee, Paul Ronovich, Kevin Reardon, Noodles Jack, Brian Carrington, Matt Bass, Sean and Nina Lamb, John McKee, Greg Riley, Marques and Flo Jean Tellier, Steve Leesman, a.k.a. Zima, Ken Hayes, Howard, Tian, Christopher Rappin, Dana Pearson, Richard, Brendan Minish, Johnny Gridley, Kemi Day, Flying Out, Christopher Dreyer, Atiyam, Greg Briggs, John Atwood, Rudy Garcia, Dave Wilkinson, Rodney Lewis, Paul, Philip Shane, Kurt Larson, Craig Landon, Sue Doster, Jason Olds, Dave Neighbor, Eric Nappy, O, Kevin Parachan, Aaron Luthen, Steve DeBell, Bob Calder, Marjorie, Paul Disney, David Simmerly, Patrick Pecoraro, Tony Steele, and Jason Roberts. Woo-hoo. Thank you all for your support on Patreon. And if if you want to support us on Patreon, hear your name at the end of the show head over to twist.org and click on that Patreon link on next week's show.
1: We'll be back on Wednesday at 8 p.m. Pacific time, broadcasting live from our YouTube and Facebook channels and from youtube.com slash thisweekinscience.
0: Want to listen to us as a podcast? You can do that. Just look for us this week in science, wherever podcasts are found. And if you enjoyed the show, hey, get your friends to listen too.
1: For more information on anything you'd like to learn about that you heard here today show notes and links to stories will be available on our website that's at www.twist.org and i don't know maybe someday we'll send out a newsletter again who knows it'll be a huge surprise when i what's
0: this in my inbox what rise from twists? you can come around sometime (laughs) you can bug us about that newsletter directly by emailing kirsten at thisweekinscience.com, justin at twistminion at gmail.com, or Baz at twist.org. We like to keep it complicated by not letting anyone have the same emails. Anyway, just put twist in the subject line so your email doesn't get spam filtered into oblivion. Wait, I didn't make up a funny thing. What would you say, Blair?
1: Um, I would say uh, be sure to put twist in the subject line or your email will be collected by a crow because it'll look nice and shiny. They'll take it to their, their tree spot. They'll polish it and change it and morph it into a tool, they'll they'll store it very carefully, but we will never ever see it because they're gonna protect it from they're, the scary humans.
0: And, yeah. and I'm not good at watching where the crows store their stuff. So no, no, yeah, no. no, just put
1: twists in the subject line. You can also ping us on Twitter <laughs> where we are at twist science at Dr. Kiki at Fly and at Blair's Menagerie. We love your feedback. If there's a topic you would like us to cover or address, or a suggestion for an interview, please let us know.
0: Oh, yeah. And we will be back here again here next week. And we hope that you'll join us again for more great science news.
1: And if you've learned anything from the show,
0: remember it's all in your head. This week in science. This week in science. This week in science. This week in science, it's the end of the world So I'm setting up a shop, got my banner unfurled It says the scientist is in, I'm gonna sell my advice Show them how to stop the robots with a simple device I'll reverse global warming with a wave of my hand And all it'll cost you is a couple of grand So this week's science is coming your way So everybody listen to what I say I use the scientific method for all that it's worth And I'll broadcast my opinion all over the earth Cause it's this week in science This week in science This week in science Science. 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 This week in science This week in science This week in science This week in science This week in science, this week in science, this week in science, this week in
1: science.